This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show is Professor Clayton Anderson from the University of Oklahoma. Professor Anderson and I had a conversation about his really impressive work called Massacre in Minnesota. And it deals with the events that annually are commemorated with the 38 plus 2 ride and the events in Mankato, Minnesota, every December. You may have heard about the mass execution that occurred in December of 1862. His book takes a look at the events leading up to that execution, as well as the context of the times. We get into that in our conversation, but prior to that, what I want to do is set the scene uh, to give a little bit more of a context, because we dive right into the details. And so what I wanted to make sure that you understood was, it's often referred to as an uprising or the Dakota War. In many sense, it is a, a war that occurs in central Minnesota and the eastern parts of what is today North and South Dakota. And so the names you'll hear are the governor of Minnesota, Governor Ramsey, uh, General Sibley, the commander of the Minnesota militia or National Guard, as, they, as we would have called it today. We'll discuss the secondary effects of the fact that the Civil War is occurring, largely in the East at this time, but that is generally a misunderstood or underappreciated consideration. The Dakota that were a part of the uprising definitely appreciated. In fact, they chose the timing because the Civil War was occurring. We'll also talk about Abraham Lincoln's role a little bit, uh, General Sully's role, and some of the other Indian leaders, Gabriel Renville, who winds up leading the Sisseton Wapenan tribe and establishes the Sisseton Wapenan Reservation in eastern South Dakota. The other thing I wanted to tell you about, though, too, is that Clayton Anderson will get into kind of schools of historical thought and his concern about the bias that is a part of this very contentious discussion that occurs in the scholarship as well as in the popular view about the, the mass execution, the uprising, uh, the reasons why it all occurred, and so forth, and how he, as a scholar, was prepared for that and uh, makes the arguments that he does in his book with an eye that that bias exists, those schools of thought exist, and that he chose to not use them and chose to work to avoid them, which I thought was very compelling the fact that he's doing his historical thinking and he has used to use a way of thinking about history that he no longer does. So with that, uh, we'll go into our conversation. Thanks, Gary, for coming on History 605 and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Every year we see the news reports about uh, the Dakota 38, the mass execution in Mankato the day after Christmas of 1862. There's there's a group that form, uh, organizes a ride from Crow Creek Reservation to Mankato every December, so that often draws a lot of media attention to it. Uh, I've often wondered, though, why did the public at the time, in 1862, demand such uh, an action of the execution? And I've read quite a bit about this over the years, the uprising and the, and the execution, but one seems to only find books or articles or, uh, that seem most interested in the blame game instead of sharing how such a disaster can happen. Uh, but I would say with reading your book, there's certainly blame to go around, but only after being presented with all the evidence, and I appreciated that about your book. And I'd like to start uh, with our conversation today by going over a bit of your background as a historian and author and talk about 
how writing the 10 other books that you, you've written kind of helped you prepare to, to write this one? Well, first of all, when I got into business, uh, there was no such thing as Indian history. Uh, you couldn't get a Ph.D. in Indian history. Um, but my mother uh, was a social worker for the Catholic Family Service, and her territory was uh, Devil's Lake, uh, Standing, I'm sorry, uh, Standing Rock, and Fort Berthold. And so I spent time as a kid on the reservation with her, particularly in the winter when she wanted someone to come along in case she got stuck in a snowbank. Mm-hmm. So I got just terribly interested in Indians and Indian history and found a, uh, a mentor at Concordia, where I was an undergraduate, who encouraged me and set me up to go to graduate school. Um, uh, I was able to work with the premier historian in the country at the time, W. Gene Holland, who had actually decided to start training some people in American Indian history when he was at the University of Oklahoma back in the 1960s, and and then he moved on to Ohio, and I worked with him there. So I I was really fortunate in being able to work with someone who was really interested in the topic and, and encouraged me to go on with it. And, of course, it was natural that I look at Minnesota since I grew up there, and uh, believe it or not, uh, my great-grandfather... His last name was Sanju, good Norwegian oh, name. Yeah, he um, he had a store in a little town in northern Minnesota called Ashby, and um, in 1890, Minnesota put out a two-volume beautiful history of the Minnesota military in the Civil War, fighting back east, as well as uh, dealing with the conflict. In fact, the majority of those two books dealt with the conflict in Minnesota. I used to go to Grandma's house and. Um, she would allow me to take those two volumes down and uh, start reading, and uh, uh, it fascinated me. I have those two volumes down in my library here in, mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. Uh, so the topic fascinated me, and, of course, it was natural that I started working on it uh, in graduate school. The interesting part of all this, I think, is that by the 1960s, there was a real change in the way in which we looked at Indians in general. Um, it was a very liberal period, uh, and in fact, um, a lot of Indian tribes were suing the federal government for what was clearly, um, you know, outrageous uh, fraud in terms of taking Indian lands. So by the 1970s, when I was in graduate school, books like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, D. Brown, mm-hmm. um, Ralph Andrus, you know, the, uh, the Last Death became standard reading in uh, a lot of colleges and uh, of course uh, the red power movement uh, which emerged uh, it was very strong in minnesota and uh, elsewhere here in oklahoma too uh so the uh, the the pendulum started to swing back from a period when we had looked at indians in the 1940s and 50s as particularly in the plain as quote unquote savages mm-hmm. And that pendulum began to swing back then to the left. And um, as it did so, it, it, it went way to the left. So by the 1980s, when I was uh, teaching at Texas A&M University, um, uh, my first job was there in 1981, uh, I was looking at Minnesota and seeing the outbreak and really struggling with trying to deal with it. Um, and so I didn't deal with it. I developed a book that uh, came from primarily my uh, my one-year fellowship at the 
Newberry Library in Chicago. They financed me for a year and just come in and use their books. That's a tremendous library, by the way. It's a private library, and you can't get in it unless you are, you know, a research scholar and have a, a reason to be there. But um, at that uh, at the Newberry, there were large numbers of anthropologists as well as historians who were working on American Indians. They have what's called the Center for the History of the American Indian there, and they're still there, very much very active. So in that liberal kind of atmosphere, a lot of other scholars working on similar topics, um, it was natural, I think, for me to move away from the outlook, uh, the, the outbreak per se, but instead to look at the period previous to it. And, you know, what I discovered was today what's called a substantivist argument, and that is that um, relationships are more important than market. And uh, we had come to an age of, uh, of political economy where economic dependency was a, a dominant theme. And, uh, of course, we had been in Vietnam, and a lot of people, scholars in particular, argued that we were there so because, you know, so McDonald's could sell hamburgers and uh, Goodrich could sell tires, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, it was a, a war that was uh, tied to the promotion of capitalism in the Far East. Well, whether that argument was true or not, um, uh, the fact is that it was increasingly uh, applied to Indian history. And uh, one of the great books that came out in 1983 was by Richard White from Stanford called Dependency Theory in, in the Indians or something of that sort. I can't give you the exact title, but Richard's an old friend of mine. But uh, he was hooked on dependency theory. But when I got to the Newberry all these anthropologists said, no, that's wrong. Tribal societies don't work that way. Mm -hmm. they, they, they're based upon kinship and relationships, mm -hmm. and relationships are more important than uh, material goods. And so fur traders who came into Minnesota very on, or even into South Dakota, many of them were out in uh, in the, uh, uh, the Coteau de Prairie uh, very, very early, uh, 1730s, 1740s for sure, maybe even earlier than that. Uh, and um, they were coming out with goods, bringing them out from Canada, and they were almost all French. And they would go into an Indian village and give those goods to the to the chief and say, "Here, this is a present to you." And chief would distribute them, and then all of his young men would go out and hunt like blazes and bring back fur, and the fur would be given to the trader. Mm -hmm. There was no, you know, well, you know, a deer hide is worth. 35 cents. That didn't exist. Right. Uh, it was an exchange, exchange of goods based upon a relationship. Mm -hmm. So that's what became kinsmen of another kind. And when I got up to the war, my argument was real simple. That relationship completely broke down. Yes. Okay. And so the book itself was incredibly well received. Um, uh, it was, uh, again, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and um, it got one of the best reviews I've ever received in my life in the Journal of American History, which is, of course, the top history journal in the country right. uh, for American historians. And um, it uh, has gone on to do rather well. Um, uh, it uh, <coughs> uh, is not an easy read, <laughs> per se, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. uh, but it uh, but it was uh, well-received, and, and then I went on to do two more books that followed up on that. One was a biography of Little Crow, which is a very sympathetic a biography of the guy. And uh, uh -huh. that hit the state of Minnesota. And uh, the Minnesota Historical Society initially printed 9,000 copies of that book, but they didn't know if it would sell or not. They didn't know if there was any interest in American Indians. And so they 
only bound 3,000 of them and sold them out in six weeks. Wow. So then they, they bound the next 6,000, sold those out within a year. The book was in paper. It's now sold over 50,000 copies. Mm-hmm. And uh, the state legislature passed a law creating a fund to hire uh, a, uh, uh, an artist to do a, uh, a, a, a statue of Little Crow, and it's, it's now in Minnehaha Park. So it, it did have kind of an impact on, on the state, and uh, whereas Kinsman of another kind sold well, but n- nothing, like, nothing like Little Crow, the biography. Right. And, uh, so anyway, um, then we did another book um, so called Through Dakota Eyes, in which we published uh, 35 narratives of Indians who were involved in the conflict. And um, over the years, I've turned to doing other things. I wanted to get away from Minnesota. I worked in the Southwest and uh-huh. did, uh, uh, did a biography of Sitting Bull, which uh, Harper and uh, Collins uh, published, and is now going to come out with, uh, believe it or not, uh, Bison Books at the University of New Mexico. It's gone through a bunch of different printings, first of all, with Harper's, and then it was bought up by Pearson Longman. And they sold it for 15 years and did real well. And then they sold it to China. It's in Chinese, believe it or not. The I can biography. believe it. But yeah. yeah, yeah, the Chinese are well, they're interested in American history, too. Sure. You know, they, they've got, uh, got their interest there. But So anyway, I've turned to doing other things. Uh, the uh, Conquest of Texas book, probably the most noted book that I've done, uh, uh, Ethnic Cleansing in the Indian, came out in 2014. It... It received, again, really, really great reviews, but um, it's a controversial book because there were an awful lot of young, West, uh, kind of very liberal historians who are convinced that the government uh, committed genocide when it comes to the American Indian. Genocide is a word that, uh, you know, has been defined in 1948 uh, and used extensively today in the world court. Um, but it's very difficult to prove genocide, and, and I, I, I rejected genocide and, 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 and argued in favor of ethnic cleansing instead. So that's where I've kind of come, and now I'm coming back again to uh, work on the Northern Plains. And, of course, I've, in order to get into the Northern Plains, you know, Ray DeMolly, the great anthropologist at Indiana, said years ago, he said, uh, the Northern Plains Wars are direct, directly connected to the conflict in Minnesota. That's when it starts in 1862. And right. spreads out into the Dakotas. And so uh, I figured I'd better do the Minnesota book first before I do the Northern Plains book, which is what I'm working on now. Okay. Well, uh, that all, there's a lot going on in that conversation. First off, you're just kind of ever widening knowledge about the, the personalities, the events, the culture, the cultural clashes that were going on between the French traders and the, the Dakota um, tribe and so forth, and then just the way they uh, perceive one another and the the wisdom or the perhaps the shrewdness of those early traders who knew how to become kinsmen, perhaps, or at least uh, understand the culture they're dealing with in order to facilitate the trade. Well, yeah, the fur trade is, is really very important in setting up uh, relationships. And uh, the new book I'm working on, uh, that segment continues up to about 1850 when it begins to break down. Right. The relationships are good. The Indians are trading with uh, Europeans or with Americans by that time, by after Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, the fur trade is uh, is fairly healthy well up until about 1850. And then it starts to break down. And the reason for that, of course, is the growing introduction of the market economy. And uh, Indians don't like that because mm-hmm. the, there are fewer furs out there to acquire. And so 
uh, in the end, goods become quite a bit more expensive in terms of the amount of labor that's involved in in killing them, first of all, cleaning the hides, and then bringing them in for trade. And uh, as that begins to break down, I call that early period articulation. And it's a term that the French neo-Marxist anthropologists have developed dealing with Africa. And uh, it's kind of a period, interesting period because it's a period where Indians are kind of looking at whites and saying, now, what are these people all about? What do they want? Uh, and how do we deal with them? And, uh, you know, are they enemies? No, they're not enemies. Uh, are they friends? Well, not really either that either at times. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But uh, this period of articulation, then, is a, a really interesting one, but that it sets up the second period, which is, of course, conflict, which starts in the 1850s and doesn't really end until 1890, of course. Um, yeah. And uh, But the period of conflict, a whole lot has been written on that, and my interest is not so much in the uh, the battles. I'm not going to – I'll probably spend, uh, you know, two paragraphs on um, – on the little bighorn. Uh, but um, my interest is really in what's happening to other Indians who are kind of looking at this period and saying, well, you know, who's going to win here? You know, who's going to be the winner? And, and you know, what's it going to cost, uh, you know, to uh, to try to preserve our old way of life, of, of raiding and killing and scalping and uh, stealing horses, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them begin to turn away from that. And uh, I call that the growing age of uh, agency, that uh, they're uh, beginning to realize that there's a new age out there, and they're going to have to adapt to it uh, mm-hmm. one way or another. And many Indians do. Right. Some don't, you know, but many do. Right. It strikes me in reading your book that, that those adapters, either through religious practice, that they adapt various uh, Christian means, they come to um, articulate, that might be a good word, certain practices and beliefs that mirror or might be sincerely held uh, Christian beliefs through the folks such as Stephen Riggs and other missionaries, and that those people yeah. become extremely important in mitigating what becomes the violence in 1862. I was wondering if you could maybe go into that influence prior to the war of the missionary influence uh, to compete yeah. with the well, business. Well, you know, the missionaries themselves really kind of considered their effort to be pretty much a failure but it really wasn't, and uh, it, it wasn't at all. And uh, there was a growing class of, oh, not only full uh, bloods, but uh, mixed bloods in particular, mm-hmm. who uh, increasingly worked together, and they realized that farming was really going to be the future. Um, uh, Gabriel Renville, of course, was one of the leaders, and I've written a biography of him that came out with the South Dakota Historical Society, by the way, right. uh, a couple of years ago. and. Gabriel is really a fascinating guy. Um, he never really speaks uh, English. Uh, he can a few words, but he doesn't want to. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yet he writes beautiful letters in Dakota, and so he studied the Dakota language in missionary school and learned how to write. Um, he, one of the guys that I really appreciate is uh, a guy named Joseph Akipa Renville, who was a full blood, but a, a relative of uh, of Gabriel, and those two together are a twosome. And uh, Akipa is a fearsome guy. I mean, he's he's tougher than nails, and yet, uh, you know, committed to try and saving uh, white captives and doing you know what is uh, good for for uh, the United States, uh, shall we say, for white settlers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there there are a large number of them, and then. 
Gabriel, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but in 1862, in the fall, he was uh, brought in by Henry Sibley uh, to set up uh, a group of Indians who would serve as scouts on the frontier. And uh, they moved out uh, into the area just beyond um, Redwood Falls and uh, out into the uh, almost to the South Dakota border and began doing a lot of scouting and, and looking for raiding parties that might be coming in. Uh, and then in 63, um, Gabriel was uh, given a commission, and he recruited over 200 Indians who would uh, come in and set up um, – uh, scouting posts along the uh, Coto de Prairie and to the west of it, all the way into the James uh, River Valley, okay. and from really North Dakota on the on the on the north, all the way down almost to Sioux Falls in the south. And those camps then became uh, a barrier for um, all uh, Indians who might be interested in raiding into Minnesota. And uh, the camps were they were very successful. Um, and that, that's a classic example of early agency, yeah. and that spreads to the Yankton. And the Yankton also began to uh, to accept this this notion that uh, you know you can't you can't raid and kill whites anymore. It just is not acceptable. And uh, so large numbers of Indians then turned to uh, uh, shall we say um, being um, shall, supportive to some degree of the United States government and of the military officers who are on the frontier. Uh, uh, some of them, um, well, many of them later on, you know, they're, they're given a salary, and and many of them apply for pensions later on. Their widows apply for pensions later on, and, and they're given pensions. And uh, uh, so they uh, <laughs> they become, you know, part of the uh, part of the American defense system on the frontier. They're American Indians. Right. So, well, so that's, that's that, fascinating. That, the, that that's uh, the agency part really starts in the 18 early 1860s and by the 80s it's dominating virtually all the Indian reservations in North and South Dakota and mm-hmm. you have Indians who are quote unquote progressive and Indians who are not very progressive mm-hmm. <laughs> and others who are uh, just determined to you know put a cog in in, in the machine and break it um, and so uh, that's kind of what Indian agents wrestle with and. Right. Uh, uh, that's a, a whole. That's a big story I want to tell, actually. Um, okay. More so than you know, Slim Blue Buttes or the Little Big Horn or right. uh, even uh, even Wounded Knee, which I'll I will get to. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the whole idea of the next book that's going to come out hopefully in two years or so. Okay. Well, I was wondering in the in the two years uh, leading up to the uprising in 1862, I wonder if you can. Kind of set the scene for what's going on in Minnesota as far as settlement. Who, what are the kind of, uh, where are the people coming from that are settling in Minnesota, yeah. and then who are the folks uh, within the Dakota tribe, and uh, and what are the tensions within the tribe about, you know, these treaties that they're making, and then uh, those treaties aren't followed through with, and the corruption and so forth. We need to walk through that too. Yeah. Well, the, the corruption is incredible in the 1850s. Um, you know, when the Dakota sold the southern half of Minnesota, they got over $500 million. You'd think that'd be enough money to handle a lot of problems. The problem, though, is that literally 490000 of it disappeared. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, it was used to pay off uh, people who convinced uh, the Indians to sign a treaty to begin with. Um, 
And um, Alexander Ramsey, the territorial governor, walked away with at least $100,000, if not more. Um, $70,000, from what I can tell, went out to Washington, D.C. to pay bribes to senators so that they would, in fact, ratify the treaty to begin with. Because hmm. uh, there, you know, there, there was a fight going on between the North and the South, and you're yeah. not going to get a treaty ratified unless you can bribe several Southern senators to vote for it. And okay. there's no reason for a Southern senator to vote to create you know, the uh, territory of Minnesota and open yeah. up massive amounts of land to settlers. Um, so there was bribery, corruption, massive corruption, and uh, the money just flat out disappears. And But each year there is an annuity that's paid, and that annuity is oftentimes skimmed very successfully by Indian agents. And, uh, and then there's a second treaty in 1858 in which uh, uh, Little Crow and, and a group of uh, leaders went to Washington, and they're basically told that they don't own anything in Minnesota. As the reservations had been set aside only by executive order for five years. Hmm. Yeah. So in the original treaty, there was a reservation set up for them on the Minnesota River, a substantial reservation. And as the treaty came out of the Senate, uh, the Senate just axed the reservation and said, no, they need to go out on the plains and live with with the other buffalo hunters out there. And uh, in the end... (coughs) Um, an agreement was made that the the president would allow him to stay for five years with an executive order. Well, that executive order expired in 1858. Mm-hmm. And so these leaders were told, basically, you own nothing, so sign this treaty, and we'll give you, you know, half of your reservation. And we'll give you $90,000 for it. And, uh, of course, that $90,000 absolutely disappears once again. Um, there are claims that are put in Henry Sibley, you know, got $12,000, and uh, many others got uh, a slice of that, and the Indians got nothing. By this time, Little Crow and others, you know, many of the leaders were beginning to realize that they were really getting ripped off, Uh, and they were hungry during the summer of 62. There wasn't any food in the warehouses. The warehouses were being plundered. Um, Everything was really breaking down pretty rapidly, and... uh, of course, the result, end result was the, the conflict um, of August 18th. And in many ways, had I been there, had I been an Indian, I would have been right alongside the crowd that was attacking Fort Ridgely. You know, yeah. quite frankly, it was it was outrageous what was done to those Indians. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, writing that story up was uh, something that uh, that it really had not been done before. Right. Uh, but then the second half of the story is what, of course, uh, is the controversial part, and that is the fact that so many, so many settlers were killed. Um, the numbers are well over 600, 630 at least. Uh, and there are several kind of, kind of amateur historians in Minnesota who have been going around the graveyards and, and looking at gravestones and counting you know, people who right. were found and buried. Right. And, uh, so the number is now up to 630 some, and that's that's the worst that's the worst massacre in American history, flat out. Right. Uh, there's nothing that equals it in anything we can find. I mean, I've looked at, you know, the slave rebellions in the South, whether it's Vesey's Rebellion or the Rebellion of 1831. Uh, there's no way that you know close to several hundred people were killed. Right. Um, so in the end. Um, this is a terrible, terrible massacre, and I struggled with that. 
And there were people at the Minnesota Historical Society, my friends, Debbie Milley in particular, who just cringed when I told her the title we were going to use. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in the end, I felt it was really necessary because that is exactly what did happen. Yeah. It was a massacre. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll and say, the other part that I yeah. really discovered that, that no one had really dealt with is the fact that there were massive numbers of settlers who moved in in the spring of 1862, right up to the, uh, to the Minnesota River, right to the edge of the reservation, thousands of them. And uh, so the population got to, well, the, the, uh, my, the number I use is lower than what General Pope used. General Pope thought there were 50,000 refugees. I, I think it's cl- probably closer to 40,000. But that's the largest mass exodus in American history from right. a conflict, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Atlanta, Georgia, when it was burned during the Civil War, didn't have, but you know, 1,500 people, you know. So uh, you're looking at a massive, massive flux of people fleeing for their lives. Yeah. And uh, bringing that in, of the conflict that had never been done before. No historian had ever decided to look at that part of it. Right. And, uh, well, I would say uh, I when I was essential. Yeah, when I first saw the title of your book, I thought you were talking about the the massacre being the hanging. But as I read oh. your book, <laughs> I realized no, he's talking about the estimated six hundred settlers who were killed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't get much attention, does it? No. No, and yeah. and I think that's. Well, the, and the corruption doesn't get any attention either. Um, no. And the buying and, off. And, and, and as I say, you know, at the end of the book, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, I worked for a long time on that paragraph. I have to see if I can find it. But mm-hmm. it's in the end of the book. I wanna, I'll want i walk out this way and continue talking to you. But, okay. yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's really hard to find anybody who might be considered a hero in this whole business. Maybe... The young lieutenant who, you know, saved Fort Ridgely, we might nominate him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a good man. He goes on later on to be a sheriff in Minnesota and uh, an honest, decent person. Right. Amongst the Indians, um, we can look at people like Akipa and uh, Gabriel Renville mm-hmm. and uh, a few others who did really save um, the settlers. I'm sorry, the uh, the captives. But when I got to the end... I worked on this for a long time, and one of the peop- uh, people who quoted it, who I'm sorry, reviewed it for, I believe it was the Journal of American History, actually cited this one paragraph. Let it be finally remembered that accounts that are designed to vilify or honor the actions of men and women who are undeserving of either only compound the problem associated with facing our past. Both history and biography are often a complex mixture of factual assessment and supposition, but if written objectively, it could never be a part of a political agenda. Right. In many ways, it has been become part of a political agenda in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the Minnesota Historical Society is is hooked into, you know, a, a general belief that uh, um, you can't publish anything on Indian history unless some uh, Indian on the uh, board uh, reviews it and says, yes, it's okay, publish it. Um, that should never happen. That should never happen when it comes to academics. Right. And unfortunately, it has happened. But uh, and then I cite uh, the Greek historian Polybius, oh, yeah. who wrote in 150 B.C., quote, if we make deliberate misstatements in the interest of our country or of friends or for favor, 
What difference is there between us and those who gain their living by their pens? Readers should carefully look out for this fault. Authors themselves be on the guard against it. Right. Um, I thought a long time about Polybius uh, and um, what he was saying um, before I really got into it. And chapter 8 is a terrible, terrible chapter to read. Uh, right. the, the white women who were captured, uh, the younger ones, those under the age of 40, were almost all sexually abused. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's a standard practice for uh, Plains Indians, uh, standard practice for Indians of, of all um, uh, make on the Plains. And it, it happens in, in the East as well with captives during the French and Indian War, although probably less so. Uh, but nevertheless, um, that sort of thing happens. And of course, goodness, take a look at what happened in the Balkans during the oh, right. 1990s. You know, I mean, uh, we we know that you know 50,000 uh, women were were abused, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe more. So it's something I, I felt I had to deal with too. Yeah. So I'll let it all hang out. Let's put it that way. Right. Well, they're all disastrous. In, uh... When society is breaking down for whatever reason and for whatever society, um, these kinds of things uh, quickly spiral out of control when when the guardrails that the society's put up uh, are melting back and are disappearing. Um, yeah, and, and, and it definitely happened here. Yeah. And, uh, I was wondering, I mean, too. Little Crow did try to prevent abuse. They did try to prevent killing. I mean, they, they weren't out to, you know, to kill every white um, uh, they were out, though, to try to rid the Minnesota Valley of whites, uh, mm-hmm. to ethnically cleanse the valley. I mean, that was really their goal. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they they failed in that. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned that a little bit, but, you know, clearly with the Civil War going on at the same time, the Army and the political attentions of the president, Abraham Lincoln in this case, are are subsumed by or consumed by that cataclysmic event that's going on Sometimes at their very doorstep, with with a hostile army approaching Washington D.C. and so forth. Now, what's the interplay between these two events, and how does how does how does politics and Abraham Lincoln respond to the uprising? Well, um, obviously there was great pressure put on Lincoln to not only execute the thirty-eight, but to execute all three hundred and three who had been convicted. Mm-hmm by a military commission that was sitting on the upper Minnesota River under the charge of now General Henry Sibley. He had become a, he had a colonel in the regular army to begin with, and, and, and with, after his success he, he was promoted to general. So he kind of thought he could do whatever he wanted to do, and so he set up this military commission and tried these Indians. Well, here's the problem. If you look at, I think it's Article 64 of the Articles of War, 65 right in there, it says basically that a military commander in the field cannot organize a military commission if there is evidence of prejudice. Now, if there wasn't evidence of prejudice in Western Minnesota <laughs> at that time, I don't know what prejudice is. Right. I don't know how to define it. And so uh, later on, the next year, the judge advocate general ruled that Sibley had no authority to try any Indians at all. Mm-hmm. And yet he did. And, of course, the trials were a farce. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were 392 uh, trials, 
in the course of 40 days. So you can do the math. Yeah. We're talking about 30 Indians being tried a day at least, sometimes 40. And so the trials were a joke, and um, the records of the trials that exist. Um, William West Falwell, an early historian of Minnesota, who wrote a wonderful three-volume history of Minnesota in the 1920s, found those trial records in the National Archives and used them a bit, but said very little about them. I went back to look for them, and I couldn't find them in the National Archives. And I finally tracked down Bob Kwasnicka, who was the head of uh, the uh, the National Resources Division. And he's from Minnesota and been in the archives for 40 years. Bob's retired now, but a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. So Bob started looking, and, of course, he found them because they had been sent to the Senate. So they weren't in the Bureau of Indian Affairs records. They were in the Senate records. And uh, found those records again, and of course I went through the originals in uh, in Washington, and then and later on uh, there's been a whole lot of work done on those. And uh, a young young scholar um, from uh, New Ulm has has gone through them very very carefully, and uh, uh, has done a great job of, uh, of of looking at them. So we're able to pretty well determine um, you know how many Indians might have been guilty of something. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks to me, when you read those trials, that there are about 40 that were probably guilty of something. Mm-hmm. It might have, you know, killed civilians. And uh, uh, the vast majority of the Indians who were guilty, of course, fled out of the plains and were at Devil's Lake when the trials were going on in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 40 that were actually uh, kind of picked out by Lincoln to begin with, of those um, I I think we could probably argue that 18 or 20 at least are are, are fairly guilty. Now I say that because uh, the missionary Stephen Return Riggs, who spoke Dakota fluently, by the way, mm-hmm. interviewed all those Indians before the executions, and he asked them point blank if they had been involved in any, and 20 of them just absolutely flatly denied having killed anybody. Mm-hmm. And they had no reason to uh, to say no. So when it comes to the executions, the 38 who were finally executed, one was one was commuted, and and, uh, and and well, actually two, I guess, were were commuted. Uh, but the 38 who were executed, then, um, if you look them over carefully, uh, there might be 17 or 18 who might have deserved execution, and uh, the others who certainly, from what I can tell, did not. Uh, now, having said that, of course. Uh, that was purely a political decision that Abraham Lincoln made in order to satisfy Minnesota, yeah. uh, because the people wanted to execute them all. Yeah. Uh, you know, the newspapers were just violently you know, oh, demanding yeah. executions, right. and so was Henry Sibley. Uh, John Pope was a little less, uh, shall we say, um, committed to the idea. Um, mm-hmm. He knew there were some problems with the trials, and he knew that this would sooner or later come up. And it did the next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, in the end, Sibley had his two lawyers sit down with all the trial records, and they went out and they picked out the 40 that were later on the list and uh, uh, were executed. Uh, I, you know, it's the largest mass execution in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not due process. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was certainly prejudice involved, racism involved. Mm-hmm. Um, it would never happen today, I don't think. Um, but um, 
the Civil War is on, and uh, in the fall of 1862, I mean, the Union is getting hammered at Fredericksburg and and, to, you know, and, uh, yep. and and in other places, and so there's not a whole lot of attention on Minnesota. Right. Uh, what is interesting in the end, though, is that Lincoln barely won re-election in November of 64, and he was at a party one day or one night and went to see, I forget the senator's name from Minnesota, uh, it'll come to me <laughs> down yeah. the road. Anyway, he was talking to the senator, and he said, uh, you know, Minnesota barely, barely, I only got one Minnesota by 2,000 votes. And uh, the senator's response was, well, Mr. President, if you had executed more Indians, you would have got more votes. Yeah. And Lincoln's response was basically, I can't, you know, you know, kill Indians in order to get votes or right. something, uh, of that, something to that effect. So, didn't, wasn't there, you'd talk about in the book that there, the military tribunal system then was reformed because of all this. Lincoln knew that, boy, this is, this is a mess and the Army's got to take some responsibility well, for this Well, it was, and it was, and, and in fact, um, it was being reformed during the Civil War by the Judge Advocate General. There was a general down in uh, in New Orleans who had captured the Union and captured New Orleans, and uh, uh, there were an awful lot of people in New Orleans who were spitting on Union troops and this sort of thing, and so they were being arrested and brought in front of a military tribunal yeah. and, in fact, uh, convicted and thrown into prison. Um, and their convictions were all overturned. Okay. And uh, there were like 200 convictions down there that were overturned. And it got to the point where the judge advocate general was basically saying uh, this, that, um, yes, you can use a military commission to try civilians. You can't use the court-martial system. That's only to try soldiers. But the military commission was designed actually in 1848 um, by uh, the, uh, uh, the general in command in Mexico City after we'd conquered Mexico City. That's what was first used. Uh, and it was designed to be a fair system, uh, to have a, uh, uh, you know, have a lawyer represent uh, the accused, and uh, uh, there's, there's, there's a, an advocate or a judge advocate who would kind of work both sides of the platform? He would ask questions of the accused and or the, of the witnesses, etc., and also represent the rights of the accused. And then there would be a military court of at least five officers who would make the final decision, up or down. But it's clear that they could say nothing. And in this trial in Minnesota, uh, the colonel in command was questioning the Indians, which he had no right to do yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. So, I mean, there were so many violations of, of what was then really military military law that it was unbelievable. And what, what how is this shown is when Lincoln got the trial records and looked them over, he shook his head and said, oh, my God, you know, normally he would have sent them on to the judge advocate general. Mm-hmm. And the judge advocate general looked at the process to see if it was legal. And what he would have done at that point is thrown the whole thing out. Right. So Lincoln didn't send the trial records, to the judge advocate general. He turned them over to two lawyers who he said, pick out. You know, I don't know what if he said, I once got criticized because <laughs> I kind of implied that Lincoln said, pick out 40, we'll kill them, you know, or yeah. we'll execute them. I think that's what happened, but I don't have, you know, I don't have a lot of proof to that effect. But uh, that's that's basically what the lawyers did. Yeah. They looked, they, they picked out a number that they thought might satisfy the people of Minnesota. Right. Another another one of the things here that I'd like to get into, and then I think we'll 
we'll wrap up the conversation, but I had been under the impression that once the uh, mass execution occurs that the war is over, but uh, I read in your book, and, and now as I pay attention to it and other things, I see that uh, Sibley and Sully and so forth go on and conduct operations, and perhaps with, with the assistance of Renville and those uh, parts of the, of the Dakota tribe um, into Dakota territory for another two years or so. Um, yes, and in fact, in the first uh, uh, expedition in, in the summer, July of 63, uh, there is a kind of a brief battle in which, according to um, Sibley's, uh, com- the commander of his cavalry, uh, about 38 Indians were killed uh, and, and a few soldiers as well. Mm-hmm. But when Sibley started writing this up, the first report he sent in was that, well, we killed 100 Indians and by the time he got to a, a month later, the, the number had risen to 150. Mm. <laughs> so uh, he was uh, he was promoting his own uh, his, his own oh, uh, uh, ability to uh, to uh, kill Indians. But um, Sully, when he went up the Missouri River, he did surprise an Indian village and and did kill a lot of Indians, maybe as many as 200. Um, during uh, this conflict, uh, one of the interesting things that does happen is that a guy named White Lodge, who was connected to the uh, the killings at Lake Shatek, okay. and he had taken and captured uh, two white women who were abused, uh, quite frankly. Yeah. And um, those women were actually bought from him um, in November of 62 along the Missouri River. But at any rate, uh, White Lodge uh, set up a plan and, under a white flag, was going to, in fact, um, assassinate Sibley and a council. And um, it was Joseph Akipa Renville who learned of it, and then Gabriel Renville who went to tell Sibley, do not go to that council, and Sibley did not go. Well, that cemented a relationship between Sibley and Renville, which did have meaning. And Sibley is a, you know, I, I, I think, you know, morally oftentimes wrong during the war. But in the years after the war, he began to help Renville and the Sisseton Wapiton people. And it's Sibley that's really, in, in many ways, responsible for them getting that reservation in 1867 in eastern South Dakota. Yeah. Uh, and Sibley supports uh, Gabriel Renville all the way through. Um, into the 1880s, the 1890s, there's a wonderful, uh, we'll uh, end on this. Um, mm-hmm. Gabriel has uh, at least three wives, all right? Mm-hmm. And there's an Indian agent who is assigned out there who is a staunch uh, religious person who says we cannot allow that. So he takes Gabriel's chieftainship away from him. At the same time, uh, the Northern Pacific Railroad had left Fargo and was headed towards Bismarck, and they suddenly discovered that that land, eastern North Dakota, had not been purchased from Indians. Oh. So um, the BIA sends a commission out to deal with Gabriel Renville. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Gabriel, of course, uh, in 1860, uh, 1873 says, hell no, we're not selling. Forget it. And walked away. And, of course, the head of the Northern Pacific Railroad then was saying, what the, you know, what's going on here? (laughs) And he discovered that the agent had been, you know, giving uh, Renville a hard time. And so he sends a letter to the Secretary of Interior in which he says, for God's sakes, 
get rid of that damn agent. I don't care how many wives <laughs> Gabriel Renville has. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what happened. Yeah. And Sibley, of course, backed Renville. And uh, yeah. so it's a kind of an interesting end to the whole business. Renville went on to live until 1891, I think. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, he was a he was a very progressive individual who uh, did a lot for his people. He really did. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's one of your books I've not read yet, so I'll have to have to dive into <laughs> that next. And, yeah, uh, that uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, and South Dakota's got a great, great, uh, and interesting history. Uh, uh, and uh, I took thirty of those books up to uh, the Sistan Reservation and. Uh, met with the tribal council and a lot of Indians who came in, and we ran out of books. They bought them all. Good. I couldn't wait to yeah. read about uh, Gabriel Renville. And, and it's a you know it's a very positive biography of, of his life. He's an interesting, interesting guy. Yes, yes. Well, Gary, uh, it's been a um, great conversation about some uh, ugly, ugly things, but uh, it's an important one that, that's had, and I uh, appreciate you coming on the show and uh, I wish you best of luck in your next book. Well, thank you. Um, um, it's just a matter of writing it. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. History.